Kia ora and welcome to Consume This. It's great to be back with you. In a break from tradition, today's episode isn't reported by myself or my co-host John Duffy. Instead, we've handed the microphone over to our producer Tom Rees-Smith. Hello, it's me. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, we sent him up to the Hawke's Bay to learn more about what's been happening in the aftermath of Cyclone Gabriel. What he's come back with is a striking story focused on how the damage is affecting our food producers and ultimately how that will trickle through to our food security and cost of living. Here you go. Every now and then a log hit the roof, hit the wall and shake the house a bit. I'm dead so. I was more worried about the kids and stuff. But yeah, it was like... Phew. Act 1. Grapes and Destruction. Cyclone Gabriel was tracking down from the Coral Sea. I was looking at it from the early days, like, must have been almost a week, at least a week before. It took ages to come down. So I got a digger, a big digger came in, and we spent a week with this guy, fixing up all my drains, put in culverts, we put in some retaining walls, and I just got the bill for that, which was a bit painful. But um, the work was great, and he did an amazing job. And everything was flowing really perfectly up until about... Six o'clock, and then it kind of gets dark, and this, this the water just starts coming up. This is Philip Barber. He's the owner of Patane Wines. Him and his family have operated the vineyard at Shore Road in Eskdale since buying the land in 2007. That's 16 years of hard work, during which time they've transitioned from growing grapes for Villa Maria through to producing his own wines and organic brands. Along with his brother Chris, he's also built up another couple of businesses on the site. So we had the restaurant, we had the brewery, we had everything there and it was doing quite well. We weren't making lots of money, but we were almost breaking even. So we could see a future. People loved it. It was so nice. And we had a wonderful year, one year and two months there. And then all of a sudden this happened. Um, yeah, it'll never be the same again. As we drive down from our Airbnb in Napier to his newly rented temporary home, we stop off at the beach in Bayview. When we arrive, it's three weeks on from the storm. So, in the city, you almost wouldn't really know anything had happened. That is until you see the beach. Its black pebbles are strewn with logs and tree waste. I'm not sure what's going to happen with it all. The main strip by the city, well that appears to have been cleaned, but if the outskirts stay as they are, I can only imagine it's going to slowly rot in the damp salty air, becoming a home for flies. As we continue down the highway, we approach a roadblock with a large, residents only sign. Up to that point, Things don't really look too bad. A bit more dust and mud on the road than you'd expect. But that's about it, really. Past the sign, things started to change. Fast. The road itself, well, that was mostly fine. The dusting of mud and silt, a couple of places where it was down to one lane, and the odd large pothole. It's off to the sides that the destruction becomes apparent. Beyond the roadblock, fields and homes give way to mudflats. Piles of forestry waste, cars and shipping containers now fill the ditches. And of course, there's the ubiquitous silt. Silt, silt and yet more silt. Where will it all go? Philip didn't seem quite sure. And I don't think anyone else knows either. But those are now problems. Problems that were yet to cross anyone's mind on the night the cyclone finally struck. It must have been 11 o'clock when all hell kind of started breaking loose. We lost power, which made it hard. Just, you have candles and um, bucket and throw out the window, throw the water out the window. And I'm like, oh my God, the water is coming closer to the window. What the hell? This isn't, this isn't normal. And then all of a sudden, um, 
the water starts coming through the wall and in the um in the laundry the shower filled up and boom the door opened and all this water came up the shower i'm like holy shit okay sarah i think we might have to go upstairs this is crazy let's go so i grabbed my guns and wine and everything i could and put it halfway up the stairs thinking it'll be safe there and sure enough the water every half hour would just come up another step another step another step i'm going to move this wine further up and move the guns further up and next thing i'm putting everything in the top level i'm thinking the water's not going to come up here Surely, and the kids are asleep in their room. I thought we'd leave them there. And this is probably, I don't know, maybe this is like about 12, 12 o'clock, because it took a long time. And then it's like, oh my God, the water is coming in the kids' room. It was up to my shins. I said, okay, I'm going to have to wake them up now, unfortunately, because I was sound asleep. Got them into the lounge room, sat them on the couch, and it would be fine up here. And then I'm monitoring the water level, and it's just creeping up higher and higher. And then it's like, it starts coming through into the into the main level. I thought, this is insane. This, I started getting worried then. And then I said, oh, look, I'm not happy being in this room because a container or anything comes from a smash this wall. So I said, we're going to get up onto the roof. This is about three in the morning, maybe four. And I open the ranch slider and all this water just pours in and just the hit me with the noise. This crazy amount of noise. You hear the surf breaking. There's a cyclone going over and then it's just a raging river. We're in the middle of the East River. Whoa. And then I looked up on the roof and the roof was kind of eerily calm. It was really strange. I felt really much more calmer up on the roof because I could see what was going on, which wasn't nice, but at least I felt as if we weren't going to get smashed by a log or a container. And it was here, sitting exposed on the roof, his children and wife Sarah huddled under an old barbecue cover, that Philip had his first chance to stop look around and really take in what was going on in his vineyard. It was very dark, but I could just see could see the moonlight and you could see this raging torrent of water. It was like, it, as far as you could see, it's just water, angry water, and there's containers floating past, there's tractors going past. There was a car with its lights on floating past. What the hell's going on there? Yeah, and that car actually was in the distance, and then it disappeared, and I think it actually speared into the wall of um, my brother's house because there was a car stuck in the wall. So I think that's what happened to that car. There's no one in that car, luckily. I was like, when is this going to end? And finally, I was waiting for the sun to come up. And I remember about 6.30, maybe 6 o'clock, the sun starts coming up and the rain slows down. And I go, oh my God, thank God for that. It was life and death for, for like a few hours there. Yeah. As the sun rises and the rain stops, still huddled together on the roof with his cold, wet family, Philip's attention turns to his brother Chris. His home's at the other end of the vineyard, well, I guess vineyard now turned river, but there was no sign of anyone on the roof. And I was thinking the worst, thinking, oh, he's, he's dead for sure. And that was horrible. It's at this point that a boat turns up, sailing over what, just the previous evening, had been grapevines and lucerne paddocks. Philip quickly assures the captain that him and his family, they're all okay, and he sends him off in the direction of Chris's home. And they raced over there in the jet boat, and they were there for at least half an hour. But then um, he, he appeared after half an hour with them on the boat. I was like, oh my God, they're alive. So nothing really mattered at that point. I was like, vineyards fucked, whatever, don't care. But everyone's alive, which is the main thing. One of the details of Philip's retelling that really struck me was, what happened next? The water just disappeared as fast as it had come. Half an hour after that boat had come sailing by, it was just land again. Not dry land, but land nonetheless. But what wasn't gone, what is still not gone, are the metres and metres of damp waterlogged silt that it left in its wake. 
it was very wet and boggy and um, I jumped down from the roof and made my way out to the road. You walked on the road, it was like a big sponge. All the water was under the, under the road and there was no one around until a guy called Jono turned up in his four-wheel drive. He helped me get the family out across the lawn and um, gave us a ride. After evacuating the area, Philip and his family spent a couple of weeks staying with a friend, Ben de Klerk, who for different reasons we'll actually meet later in this story. Eventually, Philip's family managed to secure their own place. It's a cute little beachfront house, which is where we're currently talking. I was concerned that, with the number of displaced people, it would be tricky for him to find somewhere to live, but actually he was very positive about the experience. And, as with many of the positive experiences that I learned about on this trip, it was the wider community that came together and pointed him in the right direction to find his new place. In the immediate aftermath, again, it was the community that came to his assistance. A crew of 20 from a local forestry company spent a week digging out the literal tons and tons and tons of silt from his restaurant. Another group of volunteers spent four days digging out and salvaging as much of his wine store as possible. Those bottles abound, amongst other places, for a special fundraising auction in Auckland. Aside from not being killed, the community response is what's kept us going, for sure, 100%. Without that, I think I would have been, I just would have been lost. Yeah. A lot of people said, they've said to me, yeah, you've worked real hard these 16 years and yeah, it's, we hate to see this happen. I've got more friends out there than I, than I ever thought. Yeah, which is really cool. Three weeks on, everything that can be easily salvaged, well, it has been. The volunteers have slowly started drifting back to their regular jobs and the adrenaline has started to recede. So it's now, for the first time, Philip is starting to reflect on the situation he finds himself in. Yeah, exactly. It's different different parts. I mean, the first few weeks, I was just you know there every day, digging out the brewery, getting the wine, rushing around. And now, now I get a bit more time to think. I've still got lots and lots of work to do, obviously, but it's the last few days have been quite hard. They haven't been feeling great. Um, just the enormity of it all has really hit me in the last two days. Yeah. As we speak, the big question that Philip is grappling with is whether to invest in rescuing, repairing, and replanting the vineyard, or not. It's an issue he goes back to constantly throughout the time we spend together. One minute, he's convinced it's salvageable. The next, that it's just not worth the investment. Do I go and buy a digger and start digging? Or what do I do? Because uh, is, is it worth putting hundreds of thousands of dollars into the vineyard to get it back? Or is it worth just, I don't know, doing something else? Yeah. As our conversation continues, it becomes clear that the driver of this indecision is financial uncertainty. Philip has applied to the recovery fund, and he's expecting about 23 grand to come his way. Now, to me, that sounds like a huge sum of money, but according to his estimates, that'd clear maybe half a hectare at best. And that leaves another eight or so. And the real sadness about all this uncertainty is that, for now at least, some of the existing vines are still alive, buried under two or three metres of silt. I could easily save probably a third of the entire vineyard, I reckon, and then... The other two-thirds would, could be saved as well, but it'd be a lot more work. Yeah, you might just have to say, okay, this part of the vineyard is now going to be a hill of silt. This part of the vineyard I can save. Something like that. It'll look different. they just got to factor out, is it worth it? There's no point in pouring in hundreds of thousands of dollars because vineyards are expensive to run in the best of times. And yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's a tough one. And this unexpected, unprepared for, life-changing decision, it has to be made quickly. Starved of oxygen and sunlight, the vines won't survive forever, and time is running out. But of course, as well as the financial, there are personal reasons why Philip is hesitant. 
I mean, don't forget, it wasn't long ago that his family thought they were going to die there. Cold, wet and alone in the dark. Sarah has decided she doesn't want to live there again and she's happier for us not to ever have a vineyard again. So the back of my mind is like, if we do all this and we replant it, and not replant it, save the vines, what's to say another one of these events doesn't happen in five, ten years' time? They say it's one in a hundred years, but really one in fifty. And the way things are going, it could, could happen again. So, yeah. Whatever Philip and his family decide, he's convinced that it'll be at least four, maybe five years before he harvests grapes again. And that's if he gets going now. The impact of this decision, it also goes further than wine. Philip grows lucerne as well. I'm a city boy, but apparently that's kind of like hay, and it's used to feed grazing animals, mainly cattle and sheep, throughout the winter. Philip lost 60 bales, plus another 90 or so that he was yet to harvest. And of course, he isn't the only grower that's been wiped out. The impact of these losses is already being felt across the region. According to another local lady, Sandra Spice, She's been struggling to find winter feed. Unable to source it locally, her fear is that it will need to be trucked in from outside the region. A huge cost increase that people obviously aren't well-placed to bear, particularly at the moment. And of course, those costs will need to be passed on. Passed on to us, further down the food supply chain. Um, I'll take gum boots and put some socks on. I've got some gum So far, we've been talking about all of this from Philip's new rental by the beach. But it's time to head over to the vineyard and see the reality of the situation firsthand. We jump in the car, yes with our gumboots on, and head off. As we drive, Philip becomes almost kind of a disaster tour guide. Look at the railway lines that's been destroyed. It's actually a very sobering experience. One of the people died from down there, a container had their, container had their house. You can get in here if you like. As we turn onto Eskdale Road, we get stuck behind a small, slow-moving ewe. It's carrying a single barrel of wine. Oh, that might be Linden there, actually. There's, there's... It's the kind of barrel you might find serving as a table outside a slightly bougie pub. Maybe it's even smaller than that. It turns out that that barrel was Linden Estate's entire salvageable production of Sauvignon Blanc. So yeah, that'll be their entire harvest. Shocking. Personally, I think, even more than seeing the silt piled up, the orchards vanished and the grapevines buried in rubbish. It's this image that really hit home to me the full impact of the devastation here. It's a year's worth of work, reduced to under a thousand bottles of wine. And as we continue up the road, we drive past what I'm informed is, well, I guess was, an apple orchard. So there used to be a vineyard, yeah. and it's um, apple orchard for the last probably four years. Now, there is not a hope in hell you'd be able to tell from looking at it. It was just a muddy, slightly waterlogged field. And given how long it takes to grow a mature, producing apple tree, this year would probably have been their second harvest. Not even enough time to recoup the setup and planting costs, let alone make any actual money. Now, all of that work, it will have to start again, unless the owners decide to do something different with it, that is. Or, I guess, just to retreat and not bother at all. Further up the street, there was a clean-up crew. They're helping the affected homes to shovel silt, remove rubbish, free up tree roots, and all those other things that need to happen very quickly. Right, so it's just this driveway coming up on the right. So you can see the silt. That's normally flat land. Yeah. Like how much higher do you think the land is? Uh, at least two to three metres. You pull in here somewhere and there's all my stuff. As we arrive, it's clear that he hasn't been overhyping the mess. Philip's house is surrounded by its former contents, all waiting to be appraised for insurance and then sent to landfill. A recently purchased car is leaning end up on a tree. It's filled with silt, except for a small tunnel dug out to access the glove box. 
They're about the only things on the vineyard it's possible to insure. The vines and the land are uninsurable, at least at any reasonable price. Looking beyond the house, there are no visible grapevines, just the tops of a few posts sticking out of the silt pile. I mean, if you walk around there, you can see, yeah, this row could be saved, this row could be saved, with the, with the bobcat and stuff. But it's like, far out, man. I spent 16 years planting all this out, and it's just nothing there. Nothing there. It's ridiculous. Oh, it's just awful. I just feel horrible. I feel sick, actually. Despite the scene of destruction surrounding us, Philip was particularly concerned with the fate of a bridge, a bridge that crossed a small stream on his land. It forged a path from the block with his house on over to the larger vineyard. It had been standing last time he was here. That's been smashed. Now, after two days off. That's a shame. Not so much. Because it had survived. The bridge had survived. He was convinced it was Billy, the council-employed digger driver, currently carving out a drainage channel across his property, that destroyed it. He was also convinced that it could have been saved. I'm sure he could have saved that bridge, eh? It had actually survived the cyclone, but it didn't survive the digger. That's why I'm, I'm, it was one of the things that I could have kept. And it's gone as well. To be totally honest, I didn't even notice the bridge before he brought it up, but everything else was destroyed. So it's spindly broken frame sticking up from the stream. Well, it didn't exactly seem out of place. His home is ruined. In the kitchen on the second floor, there are damp children's drawings still clinging to the wall. But today, it's the bridge that Philip seems most distressed by. Like I say, it never gets easier coming back here. Like I've been away for two days and um, it's quite horrible. This guy ruined my bridge, man, what the fuck? I'm a little bit mad about that. I guess when you have one thing that you think has survived, you cling onto it. It takes on a symbolic kind of meaning. So to turn up and discover even it's gone, well, that's tough. That bridge, that couldn't be saved? Nah, nah, that's it. As we walk around the silt fields, he keeps coming back to it. So that was my bridge. Such an amazing bridge. That was such a good bridge. Uh, I really like that bridge. I'm really disappointed he had to smash that. But I guess, I guess what's going to happen here? Am I ever going to have this place again? And like that, we're back at the inescapable question. It's the question that kind of looms over everything we're talking about. Will this land produce grapes, or really anything, ever again? It's an impossible question to escape. As we traipse across the silt, it comes up a lot. Stream of conscious style, and Philip regularly changes his mind. But, by the end of our tour, standing by the digger, he sounds like he's reached a conclusive decision. Yeah, I wasn't thinking, I was going to do this for another 10 years. 10 to 15 years, and then, you know, retire. But it's been brought forward, now I'll have to think about, yeah, as an opportunity to do something else. Because if it's going to, I mean... If it's going to take you five years I to know. get that going, I'm only going to have you're maybe... only going to stay for ten years. Yeah, I'm only going to have another five years, aren't I? There's no point. There's no point really, is there, for me. I might as well do something else. I'll go and work for someone. Be likely stressful. Obviously, I loved it, but I mean, jeez, there is more to life than just growing grapes. Maybe this is my opportunity to do something else. Now, obviously, I don't really know Philip, but based on the couple of hours we've spent together, I'd be surprised if he walked away. I've got a feeling that there'll be Patani wines produced on this land again. So that's Philip's story. But zooming out to take in the big picture, the Hawke's Bay region, well, it's lost around 25% of its harvest this year. Some of those vines will bounce back quickly. The fruit was just rain damaged or blown away in the wind. They'll have a harvest next year or maybe the year after. But then there are those 
like Philip, who've been totally wiped out. And as we've heard, that supply won't come back online for years, if ever. It's a tragic event, but on a selfish note, it's unlikely to have a huge effect on the availability or the price that you pay for your wine. Sure, maybe the 2023 vintage will be smaller than usual. There might be a flood premium on the Hawke's Bay bottles. But the rest of the country, including our largest wine region, Marlborough, well, they should more than make up for the difference. That's not something that can necessarily be said for the region's other crops. Act 2. Apples and investment. Unlike grapes, Hawke's Bay is our largest growing region for apples and pears. Collectively, they're known as pip fruit. The current estimate is that nationally, the crop is going to be down over 20%, although in Gisborne, the damage still hasn't even been fully assessed. And that's just this season. But it'll take years to replace and regrow all the trees, so it's not like it's going to jump straight back up again. Philip is a relatively small-scale producer, but the same can't be said for our next destination. So my name's Paul Painter. I'm a fifth-generation grower. We started growing in Stoke in 1862. We now are in Hawke's Bay since 1904, and uh, we're growing about 550 hectares of fruit trees in the bay. That makes us probably the largest family business here. So we sell uh, under the Yummy brand, and we're big suppliers. Probably 70% of our fruit goes to the domestic market, which has always been a, a great passion of ours. Despite all his talk of domestic supply, Paul only has about an hour, maybe an hour and a half, before the arrival of an important Vietnamese export customer. So rather than chat in the office, we jump straight into his truck and head out to see some orchards. Sorry about my messy truck. As we drive, the thing that really sticks out to me is how much of a difference half a kilometre can make. In Havelock North, there are people out buying expensive dresses and sitting in cafes. Before we head over to Paul's place, we actually joined them. I had a coconut water and a plum slice. It was quite good. But it was a very different experience to the Esk Valley we left, and honestly, sitting there, well, it kind of felt a bit weird. Paul has 53 orchards spread across the region, so his apples aren't in the same basket. Excuse that terrible, terrible pun. But this geographic diversity, it does mean that, sure, he suffered some significant damage. But his entire crop hasn't been wiped out, not in the same way it has been for Philip and some of the other growers. 17% of the orchards have been destroyed completely. Um, In fact, they're basically beyond recognition. And then we've got probably another 15% where the jury's out. And of those totally wrecked orchards, well, at least some of them are the bare, treeless silt mounds that neighbour Philip's property in the Esk Valley. The ones we talked about earlier. Everyone in the region seems connected somehow. Paul's recent attempt at creating an orchard there is the first time that fruit trees have been grown on that land since the last great flooding event, and that was 1938. Those soils have just sorted themselves out and we just started planting. We just planted a piece of land that had never been planted since then, about three years ago. The land has previously been cultivated with grapes and plums. Apparently, they can survive in lower quality soils, because after an event of this magnitude, well, it takes a long time for the soil to recover. Most soil scientists would say, you know, if you can wait 100 years, that'd be good. 200 is better. And the reason for this is because healthy soil is alive. It's full of bacteria and microbes. Those invisible organisms play an important role in the ecosystem. They break down organic matter and provide crucial nutrients, the nutrients that help keep the land arable. When you go through a flood like this, everything drowns. 
everything drowns and so that's why often after a lot of rain event you know the, the soil sort of smells that's basically the anaerobosis and the death of all of that the uh, insects and microbes in the soil so it sort of stinks personally i'm not sure that stinks is exactly the right word but there is a sort of it's an indescribable kind of musty odor that hangs over the silt plains in the esk valley paul does have one key advantage over philip he doesn't own the land it's leased from a local church so he can walk away leave the silt and move on elsewhere uh, in the Esk Valley, shut the gate. Um, we'll never plant another apple tree there. What they should do is just level out the river silt, sow it in grass, and put a few sheep on it for a generation, and then we'll think about it again. But um, it will be out of action for a while until it sorts itself out. But of course, this new river terrace actually is a little bit of protection from subsequent floods. So this has just made flooding less likely if we leave it where it is. We certainly shouldn't clean this silt away in my view. As we continue our drive down towards Pakafai, Paul takes us past scenes of destruction. They're different scenes to the ones we saw in the Esk Valley. This time it's caravans in hedges, a shipping container, end up in the middle of a field of trees. And there's less silt. But what there is, is a very liberal scattering of rotting vegetables. When we pull into Paul's first orchard, it looks kind of okay. The trees were dirty and dusty, but they had little red apples hanging on their branches still. Unfortunately, they will all likely die. Apple trees tend to get a lot of soil-borne diseases, and the most well-known ones Phytophthora. And uh, we had a minor flood in the Esk Valley five years ago, and we've still got trees dying today. We could be living with this problem for I don't know how long. We won't actually know until next spring how many of these trees will survive. And this will prove difficult to navigate. It doesn't make any economic sense to rip out the trees just in case. But the uncertainty also makes it very difficult to estimate their future crop yields. As we drive further into the block, the destruction becomes clearer cut. It's a real mess. Actually, back there, we've got some shade cloth on these Granny Smith because they tend to get a bit of sunburn. And it's 3.6 metres in the air, and we've got pumpkins on top of it. As well as the pumpkins, the trees are covered in rubbish. Broken fences, metal and dead sheep. You'd think it'd be the dead sheep, wrapped around the trunk of a tree, that would stick in my brain. But I look out the other window, and there's a bright pink packet of prawn crackers lying on the ground. Who knows where it floated in from, but it does feel very out of place. Another 30 metres past the prawn crackers is a big, empty, muddy strip. Apparently there used to be trees there, but you'd never know that now. The flood has come through here, and it's ripped the whole orchard out and all of the posts and wires and the irrigation and everything and it's gone. If someone says where is it, I don't know. Uh, It'll be in somebody else's place or in the river or floating in the Pacific or I don't know where it is but it ripped the whole lot out so there's nothing left. We drive further down, past more orchards. Again, some look fine, others look ruined. This time it's the fences that stick out. They're full of onions, like thousands of onions just hanging from the wire. If it weren't for all the silt and reeds caught up around them, they'd look like they were intentionally hung there, left to dry now that the floodwaters have receded. But dry or not, these onions are ruined. I wouldn't eat them, and you shouldn't either. Further down the Brookfields Road are Paul's most prized apple blocks, home to his ambrosia trees. Last year we we got more than $50 a box for these apples, 
and they're not ready to pick yet. There's a couple in the trees still, but most of them are on the ground. This block here produces um, more than 90 tonnes a hectare every year. Great pickouts, great size, and north of $50 a box. In previous years, that's made it Yummy Fruit's most profitable patch. The trees are still there, but the fruit is gone. It's carpeting the grass and painting the surrounding fields in a patchwork of red hues. Under different circumstances, it would actually look quite pretty. Again, whether these trees will survive, well that remains to be seen over the coming months. But either way, it's a big blow. Well we might have spent something like three million producing the crop that's disappeared, so that's gone, but I think our revenue will probably be say 15 million under budget, and I think the loss of the capital assets we've got to replace them will cost 15 million, plus the, the lag of getting them all into production over a few years. So people don't understand this, I don't think. The growers can't recover from it. They've lost their revenue, they've lost their capital assets, and basically they're out of cash. Yeah. So unless there's new equity coming from somewhere, um, we, there's no way we can re-establish. I, I haven't got $15 million to replant all those orchards. So we'll be much smaller operators than we were. We'll downsize and, and survive, and I'll go back to driving the tractor. Downsizing is ultimately something that Paul tells me he's reluctant to do. It would mean the loss of about 100 jobs. Skilled staff, who he reiterates over and again, he really doesn't want to lose. And there are other logistical difficulties as well. Um, we've got a pack house designed to pack the crop we've got, cool stores designed to store the crop we've got, trucks and tractors and all the infrastructure designed for the crop we've got. Now we haven't got the crop. Mm. So what I do with my cool store, I could try to lease it commercially, but 20 other cool stores around town trying to do the same thing. So everybody's got smaller. So I haven't got any people that want to pack fruit in my pack house and I haven't got any people to want to store in my cool store. So I've got an infrastructure overhead that I can't downsize. At least four of those... Now excess tractors, well they've been flooded and buried in the silt. But somehow, I don't think pointing that out would be much of a consolation to Paul, so instead I just stay silent. The orchards carry on, across the other side of the Tutaikuri River. But we can't get there. The Brookfields Bridge has been washed away, and the end's been blocked with a large tree stump, I guess to stop any unsuspecting drivers from careering into the river. So instead, we sit in the car, and Paul comes back to his real issue. Finances. People keep talking um, somewhat mindlessly, I have to say, about, oh, we, the growers, you know, need, we'll need time to recover. We won't recover. I think we've got to be really clear about that. I'll give you a really good example. Somebody bought a piece of land in this region, nice land uh, worth 160,000 hectares, say. Then they planted an orchard on it, it cost them $140,000 a hectare. So they've spent 300 grand. They might have borrowed, say, 100 from the bank. 33% debt, pretty sensible. Well, now the improvements have been wiped out, so then Kiss goodbye to their 140 grand there, and the land's not worth 160 anymore, it's worth 90. So they owe the bank $100,000, and the land's worth 90. How are they going to rebuild? They've now got uh, debt that's more than their equity, they're underwater, they're out of business, and they say, look, Mr. Banker, I'd like another 140 grand to replant the orchard and plus throw in a bit more so that I can clean the land up first. Well, that banker isn't going to lend to them. They're not viable. So in truth, without some massive amount of new capital, we haven't got a future. But the banks aren't going to lend it. It actually isn't commercial for them to do so. I wouldn't either uh, because we've had our balance sheets hammered. We've had our income for this year and subsequent years hammered. And we've got a massive cleanup job, so we're we're um, we're all kind of today insolvent. 
there was a lot of new money coming into the industry from my farms and Craig Moore and into Rocket, private investors. And those private investors are going to go, well, I didn't know about this sort of risk. I feel about, you know, mum and dad investor. Now, I have to agree with Paul here, especially in the current environment with rising interest rates. Investing in a flooded orchard, well, it really doesn't seem that appealing. I mean, my shares account, personally, has rarely have ever been in the green, but even I probably wouldn't do it. So that, that money will dry up. So where's the money going to come from? Although Paul does seem a little despairing about this, he has an idea of what he'd like to see happen. Rebuilding's a really good idea. There's a good economic case. But unless the government come up with some sort of, um, well, some grants to clean this up, which is going to take way more than anybody ever thought, and then some maybe a Gabrielle bond where they can sell to people and then lend us the money for reasonably friendly interest rates, it's not going to happen. And this is one thing that he is very clear about. According to Paul, replanting is the right thing to do. A few people I've spoken to on this trip, and not just those involved in the apple industry, have told me that it could be a boom time for exports. The story of food exports to Asia is absolutely compelling. There's going to be huge demand for food in the future. Uh, Agriculture is basically on the decline in Asia and everybody's moving to the coastal big cities. They love New Zealand. They love our brand. They believe in our food quality. They believe in the food safety. And so the demand for produce out of Hawke's Bay and out of New Zealand in general of all types is high and it's going to get more. All of the all of the data with population growth says it's a winner. And so the most important thing is we develop a pathway and we're going to need government help to do it to replant and reinvest and build back better because we've got some varieties and some opportunities to plant new orchards using new technology. And so if we can do that in 15 years, we're going to look really smart and we'll be better off than we are today. But the pathway to get there is onerous. We're probably going to lose 3,000 hectares in Hawke's Bay with 150 grand to replant. So that's $450 million dollars to get replanted and throw in another 50 to get us through until we get to cash flow break even which is four years after replanting so we need half a billion to get going basically that's a lot of money now here we're talking about the entire hawks bay pit fruit industry not just yummy fruits but even then half a billion dollars well that's a lot of money and it explains why despite the predicted boom in the apple market it's going to be hard to find and as all the producers scramble around trying to find it it brings us back to a classic issue. And the challenge for New Zealand is the growers desperate for cash will sell to the highest bidder if that's the Chinese, they won't want to sell it here. So we're going to have to compete with international demand. And people are going, well, outrageous prices. Um, well, unfortunately, it's probably going to get worse. And this makes sense to me. It's a classic supply and demand issue. For the next few years, there's just going to be less supply. And the growers, well, they're going to need to raise money to replant and wait for those trees to mature. Sure, we grow enough apples to ensure that there won't be any shortages, but as there are less to go around, prices are likely to rise, especially as we compete with those overseas markets. For pit fruit, the general consensus seems to be that we won't feel the full impact of these price rises until towards the end of the year. But, I mean, imagine you're a farmer. You're staring down a $15 million bill, and however much you might enjoy supplying the domestic market, well, you're really going to want to get that export cash, aren't you? Because ultimately... Paul's main goal is to rebuild and recover. When you're sitting on the on the doorstep talking to your grandkids in the fullness of time, 
You won't tell them about the really good year you had. It'll be a boring story. You'll tell them about this disaster and how you recovered from it. You know, life's a journey, not an outcome. So I'm pretty philosophical. I think this will make me poorer, uh, maybe a more empathetic, more compassionate person. And um, I hope that out of the back end of this, I personally will be richer. And I hope that I'll build something for the next generation. So that'll keep me going. My kids are you know, still at school, but by the time they're interested in coming back into the business, I hope to have rebuilt them something that they say, wow, that looks exciting. I'm, I'm going to go and work with dad, which is what I did with my father and what we've done for five generations now. So it's my job, like my forebears who have survived earthquakes and floods and wars, to survive this and to build for the next generation. Act 3. Vegetables and the cost of living. Vegetables are almost the exact inverse of apples. I mean that in that the impact of the losses is immediate, but the repercussions are actually much shorter term. It just doesn't take as long to regrow a broccoli or a tomato plant. Vegetable supply in particular has also been affected by the flooding in Northland and Pukekohe earlier this year, so we were already experiencing some limited shortages. It actually proved hard while we were in Hawke's Bay to track down a vegetable grow with the time, or maybe just the inclination to talk to us, but then again the big buyers are the supermarkets and they aren't exactly our friends at the moment either. Eventually, we managed to arrange a meeting with Ben de Klerk. Remember him from earlier? He's the man that Philip stayed with when he evacuated his house. He's also the owner of a smallish Bayview farm, Petit Jardin. He's been growing on the property for the last four years. Oh, there's over 40 different veggies here. So it's a market garden from strawberry to lettuce, kale, uh, rocket, broccoli, beetroot. Bayview, where Petit Jardin is located, is slightly further down the coast than Eskdale, and crucially, it's further away from a river than either Philip or Paul's properties. It's kind of far, it's good 800 meter from here, or probably, or maybe more flying. But that distance, well, it wasn't enough to prevent his farm from flooding. Ben and his family went to sleep on the night of Gabriel, mostly unconcerned. But when they woke in the morning, the fields were underwater, and his new car, which for some reason he'd unfortunately parked at the lowest part of the property, perhaps a sign of that confidence that they were actually quite far away from the river, well, that was also submerged. Yeah, just flooded. Ben is the kind of person that I would describe as very sunny. He's almost a kind of bafflingly positive person, to be honest. Even faced with his farm being underwater, he just decided to make the best of it. Yeah, took the kids on the kayak and uh, the, the little kid in myself was having a blast that day. <laughs> it's just when the water go down, it's a bit different. It was at that point, after the water receded, that he could see the extent of his losses. Most of his crop, well, it had been totally submerged. Over 75%, 80%. Just a time of the year where... Um, Autumn veggies come, like eggplant, capsicum, all those things have been lots of time to grow, and they were just about to produce a watermelon, and they all rot in the water. I had to throw everything. So yeah, lots of little planting, rotting, courgette rotting. With Philip and Paul, their produce has largely been washed away. No one really knows where it's gone. Ben, on the other hand, well, he still needs to go through the process of harvesting his. But then... Rather than packing it up and shipping it off to customers, it's all destined for the compost bin. A season of work that's just lost. There are two main places that Ben sells his produce. 
The first is via his own veg boxes. I just stop it because I don't have the, the range and the quantities to, to do that part of the business, so I shut that part of the business. For now, the people that he used to supply directly, well, they need to look elsewhere for their produce. In normal times, he also supplies Chantal, a medium-sized grocery store in Napier City. That too is on pause. Yeah, as far as impacts from supply issues going, we're having to readjust quite a bit. This is Tim Stevens. He's the manager and part owner of Chantal. I meet him next to a large fridge in the produce section of the store. And gaps here would be from Petit Jardin and Bayview. Then there's citrus. A lot of that came from Lynx Road. She had to escape up to her neck along a fence line. And now she's all silted up. Avocados, getting some from Northland, but our growers in East Valley. 400 trees are just gone. Tim has a kind of straight-ahead, dissociated look. It's a gaze I've come across a lot on this trip. Like, he has to stare into the middle distance and think about the storm as an abstract event, not something personal that happened to him. We move into the back room, where he explains that he's already seeing significant increases in cost. We're definitely paying more for produce, just for transport. Tim's currently filling the gaps by shipping up food from a farm in the South Island. Got two pallets last week and got a pallet this week coming up. For a crate from the South Island, one crate of veggies, which holds, say, 20 heads of broccoli, that's an extra $10. You know, it's an extra 50 cents a head of broccoli just to get it here. They weren't even that cheap to start with, and that has to be passed on, you know. We don't have any room in our margins to eat up $10 a crate. And the StatsNZ data, well, that agrees with Tim. Since the storm, it's showing a spike in the fresh fruit and vegetable prices, but as well as those price rises, there are also things it's just not possible for Tim to source at all. I don't think that we'll have the variety of things in our produce chiller to give people. But I think we'll be able to muddle together with our basics, for sure. Coomeras will be more expensive. Onions will be more expensive. We'll definitely have to have more imported onions and garlic is another one we can get from the US. Yeah, we'll pay more and there'll be holes. But as we said earlier, there is some good news on the vegetable front. The storm hit just early enough that Ben and the other growers, well, they still have a window to get their winter crops in the ground. The first thing I could do, I couldn't touch the, the paddock, so I went to put some seeds on the nursery. And um, I've got lots of little plants coming here. Um, that will be all the things that can grow its, uh, for the winter, yeah? Once in winter, nothing grow. So in a way, it's good that the cyclone it is, it is at that time, already a few weeks back. It's a very small window. It might be a small window, but it is one he expects to hit. The seedlings from his nursery will just about make it out into the field in time to provide some proper winter veggies. And by spring, he should be up and running at full capacity again. That's not something that can be said for Philip or Paul. We started this episode talking about food security. And if I'm honest, when I began this journey, I was expecting more despair, predictions of supply imbalances, gaps on the shelves and increased prices. And while it does seem clear we will continue to see some of that, particularly in the North Island, my main take home is more one of personal loss. The region has been smashed. Individual growers, their families and employees have taken a huge hit. One that's going to take them years to fully recover from, financially and mentally. 
but it's also clear to me that there is a determination to recover, to grow back better, once they figured out how to pay for it, that is. This episode of Consume This was introduced by me, Sophie Richardson, and reported and produced by Tom Rees-Smith. Our thanks go out to everyone in the Hawke's Bay region who took time out of their day to drive us around, show us their properties, and share their stories. If you have been affected by Cyclone Gabriel and need someone to talk to, please free call or text 1737 anytime for support from a trained counsellor. Consume This is brought to you by Consumer NZ. We're a small, not-for-profit organisation advocating for your rights. You can support our work and access our full range of resources by becoming a member. Full information on the benefits of joining and how you can do it are on the Consumer NZ website. You can also find it via the link in the show notes. Hari tu atu, hoki tu mai. <laughs>